Today in the garage, we have Jessica Greenwood and Daniel Brown. Jessica Greenwood is an experienced trial lawyer, having conducted hundreds of trials and hearings and appearing at all levels of court in Ontario. She regularly assists the court as amicus curiae. After over a decade of running her own firm, she joined Spring Law, where she is a partner. Jessica's practice focuses on mental health advocacy and the intersection between criminal law and the workplace. She regularly advises employers and employees on policies that support inclusivity and conducts workplace investigations. She defends allegations of wrongdoing for regulated professionals and those charged with criminal offenses. Jessica often guest lectures and is a legal member of the Ontario Review Board, an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto, and a founding member of WELL. And she serves on the executive of the Criminal Lawyers Association. Daniel Brown is a criminal defense lawyer and lead counsel at Daniel Brown Law LLP recognized as one of Canada's 10 best boutique criminal law firms by Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Daniel has devoted his practice to criminal, constitutional, and regulatory law and has appeared at every level of court in Ontario and the Supreme Court of Canada. He is, a, he is certified by the Law Society of Ontario as a specialist in criminal law and is the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. He also teaches advanced criminal law at Queen's University Faculty of Law and acts as review counsel for Innocence Canada. Daniel co-authored Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offenses, Sexual Offense Cases from Iman Publishing and often writes editorials for the Toronto Star on a wide range of criminal topics. Whether you're driving your Porsche 911 Targa, shrumming your fender, or giving a quote to the media, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Jessica, Daniel, thank you for being here today in the garage. Oh, thank you so much for having us. I'm, I'm so excited about this. And uh, also now we have to call Dan Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us back here. We, we haven't seen each other uh, very much during the pandemic, so I'm very happy to have two of uh, old friends here in the garage with us. Uh, Jessica, you and I met very, very early on in our respective careers you remember that i sure do you were one of the first uh to me you were a senior lawyer at that point i don't even know if we were lawyers yet uh we met at the toronto east detention center both seeing clients and that was my first time ever going to the east and you were very kind to me and you told me that i had to fill out that piece of paper and you told me where to go and what to do and i was very grateful and daniel we met long, very early on as well. I remember as uh, you were one of the Pinkowski people that we would look up to and subconsciously compare ourselves to from uh, Hicks Adams. Well, I remember we were always running around the courts around the same time, uh, hurting our clients, getting them into the set date courts and trying to get through our long set date lists. So, uh, And you were always there to talk to and to have a good laugh. And um, uh, we've been friends ever since. We all kind of maintain a practicing criminal law but it seems that jessica i thought you closed down your practice at some point <laughs> that's what i heard those are the covid rumors oh rumors uh well the rumors are not true i uh i was during the pandemic really looking for ways to expand my practice and uh join spring law to uh move into doing some employment work especially around workplace investigations and it turns out there's an incredible niche between people getting in trouble at work and people getting in trouble uh in criminal law so that's uh that's what i'm building and daniel how did you find uh, the pandemic uh impacted on your practice 
We actually expanded during the, the pandemic. It was surprising. I think, though, there's been a, a, a bit of a shift in the way people hire lawyers. Uh, it used to be uh, the client would go to the courthouse and maybe they would see uh, the, 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 the lawyer's office right next to the courthouse and pop their head in. They'd hire a lawyer that way or you'd see the busy lawyer in the hallway and talk to them. Uh, but after everything went virtual, people started looking elsewhere. They went online and started doing the research. Um, and I think that really... Uh, worked to our advantage. We had a good online presence. We had a good internet presence. Uh, and we were able to capitalize on that. And uh, we were able to build, we had a, a good core group and we were able to expand that core. And, and uh, really, I think uh, I'd never imagined I'd be uh, kind of supervising a group of lawyers in this type of numbers. I came from a really large criminal defense firm. Uh, I loved having so many lawyers around, but I never thought that that was something I was capable of building on my own. And it just seems like uh, things are going well for us right now. You, you're like a general manager. Yeah, I like to think about that. Like it's, it's like yeah, you get to draft talent uh, for like a baseball team and, and pick out to, uh, tomorrow's rising stars. Uh, I love that aspect of, of this business. And I, you know, I love being a criminal defense lawyer. I also love being a mentor uh, and a boss and a, a, a a coworker and, and all those other things. And it's great to have a, a, a great team around me. I'm worried he's not going to have time for my questions anymore, though. He's got, <laughs> he's got too many people to supervise. I'll always have time for you. <laughs> Daniel, I, I was I was joking around yesterday because he called me before coming in. And usually I send out a questionnaire. And I'm like, oh, Daniel, didn't you read the questionnaire? And he's like, I'm, I'm kind of busy right now, Mark. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right. And then I realized I never sent it to him. So he apologized <laughs> For not reading it. And meanwhile, I never even sent it to him. I felt so bad afterwards because, you know, he's got these obligations. And, you know, as also the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association and all that comes to and running a big firm. So I just want to take it back a, a little bit. Jessica, tell us a little bit about how you got into criminal law. Why criminal law? There's a few reasons. Uh, I would say that... Um, Having a brother who had a disability and growing up in a small town that wasn't very tolerant of people who were different was something that shaped my experience. And I didn't realize it when I was a kid, but I was an advocate for my brother, both in terms of resources and also in the way people treated him. And I really didn't like the way that uh, we were bullied and ostracized. You know how it was in the 80s. I feel like bullying was more overt than it is now, although um, people may say differently, young people may say differently about social media. So that definitely shaped me. And then when I went to law school, I immediately, uh, I think it was before school even started, I said I wanted to volunteer at the legal aid clinic. And working with vulnerable people just made me want to be a criminal defense lawyer. I, I feel the injustice of the system and the weight of the system, it's real. And um, I wanted to do something to change the course of, of the way people experience the system and make sure that they had someone by their side that uh, gave them a voice and made them feel heard and included. It's funny how as, as we draw upon those early at the at the time you're in law school or you're making these professional decisions you're not saying what are my life experiences that have brought me here but then as we reflect on it we start thinking about these things that happen uh, at a young age in your life and how 
the advocate you are today might have blossomed from all of these early experiences that we kind of took for granted at the time they were happening as how they were forming us and and shaping our self, uh, shaping us into advocates. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I certainly also uh, can say that I had people around me that went to jail, but uh, but thought I could save some mem- uh, family members' legal fees. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it definitely shaped me for sure. Daniel, how about you? What, how'd you get your start? Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be a lawyer at all. I had uh, done my undergraduate in political science. I went into a PR program. I was going to do public relations or some sort of media relations or something like that. Uh, And then one day my mother heard that an old friend of mine uh, was at law school and was going to become a lawyer. And I said, well, I could have easily done that too. And she said, well, all I know is that this other guy, you know, he is a lawyer. He's going to be a lawyer and you're not in law school. So uh, just to prove her that I could actually get in, I, I, I wrote my LSATs. I applied for law school. And then, at, you know, I was surprised when I actually got in. I thought, well, you know, that was kind of the hard part was, was getting through the application process. I may as well just go and kind of check it out. So unlike Jessica that, you know, seemed to have like this, like desire to be a criminal uh, lawyer and, and, and to correct injustice, you know, I kind of got there just to prove a point to my mother and really had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. Um, So I I showed up at law school and I was really just looking for things that I thought would be interesting. I I didn't know what type of law I wanted to practice because I didn't want to really be a lawyer in the first place. Uh, And I took a summer job at a criminal defense firm really as a way to pad my resume for what I thought would be my you know, uh, my job on Bay Street, I was just following what everyone else was applying for. And so uh, it was c- completely shocking when I ended up at this criminal defense firm and I got to see sort of firsthand other people's experiences with the justices, some others, other people's experiences with the police, because it was c- totally different than how I had been brought up. Like I never had a negative experience with the police. I never had a negative encounter. Uh, I didn't feel the injustice. I, I grew up in a fairly privileged uh, upbringing and it just uh, that uh, kind of completely missed me, uh, and so seeing it firsthand made me realize sort of uh, how important this type of work was. Um, and my mother was devastated when I told her I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer. She said, "Well, at least consider being a, a prosecutor instead. You know, something good." <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I think I'm a contrarian by nature. I'm a, a, a troublemaker. Um, ever since I was young, and that criminal law really suits me perfectly. And I feel like, I mean, I've been doing this almost 20 years, and it feels like every day uh, you go to to work, but you're not actually working. I mean, we all have difficult days, but it it feels like this is the, the, the perfect type of job that doesn't feel like work at all. Now we know how to get Dan to do something. We just get his mom to, to tell him yeah, he can't you can't do it. Just, just tell yeah. me I can't do just something. Just tell me I can't do it. Yeah, I think that's how I ended up as the president. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with your public relations background, Daniel, I, I remember um, when I was just starting out that that there was this. You you had a as a young lawyer had a story of one of your cases in the newspaper, and I thought to myself. That's a, a huge accomplishment for somebody who's so junior at the bar. And then since then, now we see you all the time uh, in media and other you know, uh, print media and, and on TV. But 
early on. Tell us a little bit about how you got that story in the paper or why that story was in the paper. Yeah, it almost became a bit of an urban legend that uh, I was an articling student and I was uh, assigned the task of defending one of the lawyers in the office for her traffic ticket. She had made an illegal left-hand turn uh, in Toronto uh, when the sign said you weren't allowed to make a a left-hand turn. Um, And I was doing some research. I had been sent off to to represent her. and, And she had just said, essentially, you know, plead me down to something that uh, doesn't avoid uh, points. But I saw this clause that appeared to suggest that if the signs weren't in English and in French, uh, as required by the French Language Services Act, that they wouldn't be lawful. So I made this pitch to the judge, and the judge agreed with me, and I was completely surprised. But the judge found uh, my client, this lawyer, not guilty. Uh, At the same time, another lawyer in the office heard that result and called his friend in the media and it ended up as a small story in the Toronto Star or Toronto Sun the next day. And from there, it just exploded. I ended up uh, uh, doing CBC Radio and uh, talking to Reuters. And it was uh, uh, the front page story of the Globe and Mail and, and other things. And I, you know, I couldn't believe it how this little um, story and this like, kind of small argument uh, ended up at, as such a, a big thing. Because here I was, this articling student that had really figured out a way to declare all the Toronto street signs as invalid. And there was talk about it being millions of dollars to fix uh, this problem. Uh, as it turns out, uh, I got a lot of notoriety from that. And thankfully, the uh, the appeal uh, that came uh, just a few months later that overturned that decision was uh, much uh, less publicized. But it turns out that, at, in fact, that the uh, Toronto wasn't required to abide by the French Language Services Act uh, for its street signs. Um, and so, but that was, that was just kind of my first moment dealing with the media. Um, and I was really ill-equipped to do that. Uh, even though I had a background in, in public relations and, and dealing with media, um, I had no idea um, what I was doing. Or, and I, I wasn't thinking about the things I was saying um, and in, in some ways, kind of the, the, the media use me as a tool to kind of against uh, the French language. And, and I, I think I learned a lot from that experience going through it um, and, and realizing just how important uh, your what you say to the media, how that can be portrayed later on. And it's it's really their agenda, not your agenda that drives these stories. Jessica? I, the first time I was in the media? Yeah. When was the first time you were in the media? I was three. Okay. Be, you beat Daniel. <laughs> you beat Daniel. I won a Canadian tire coloring contest. And they, uh, I was on one of the front pages of the local news section in our, uh, our small town paper. And I got to pick a toy as the prize. <laughs> it's an accomplishment that they spin your, your coloring in a in a difficult way did they misquote you <laughs> no i don't think i had much to say but i got a really cute cabbage patch doll as the prize i want to flesh out this issue uh in as lawyers dealing with the media a little bit further because i know both of you have been involved in very uh, high profile cases and i've seen your names in print and on tv a lot um both commenting on other cases as well as your own cases. Can you either of you share some experiences or perhaps some pointers uh, about dealing with the media? And first, let's talk about cases that you're involved in. I'll start with you, Jessica. Sure. So, you know, I've had my fair share of cases uh, in the media, and I, f- I feel like one of the common things that's often said is, 
you won the case on a technicality. The, the media loves to report things like that as if you, your client didn't have a defense or didn't go through due process. So one thing is to always think about how you can reframe the issue, have some central themes that you want to be able to say or explain. It's our job as lawyers to educate the public about the system. People don't get off on a technicality. That's a very uh, poor choice of words and a, a, not a good way to explain the justice system. But I think it's also important to remember that we have ethical obligations uh, to our clients and to the profession. You should think about what it is that you're going to say and make sure that you either have your client's permission to do so or that you're not going to be commenting on someone else's case in a way that disparages the profession. You can get yourself into a lot of trouble. So I have, I have some tips that we can uh, talk about as we move through, but I would say those are kind of the overall uh, big picture considerations. And I know I spoke to Sam Pisano in preparing for this uh, podcast today. And a shout out to Sam, who's now become a paralegal. Uh, but he said, keep it simple and straightforward. If it's in print, it shouldn't be more than 17 to 20 words in a sentence. And make sure that you boil it down to your best elements. It should be smart and snappy so that there's no legal jargon and make sure that you capture the message that you're trying to convey. And I agree with all of those points. For some of our listeners, um, Sam Pisano was the crime reporter for the Toronto Sun for my entire career. Exactly. So 30 years. And, um, you know, he's a familiar face around the courthouse. So, you know, we take his words of, uh, of, of wisdom. Dan? Well, I, I think just on that first point, even the idea that Jess would reach out to Sam and get some advice, I think that's important. I mean, we're, we're, um, we're lawyers, we're trained as lawyers, and we're not trained at dealing with the media. And so there's nothing wrong with talking to someone else about those types of things. Uh, I get advice still, notwithstanding the experience that I have dealing with the media, I still get advice from experienced journal, journalists about how to respond to a particular issue, whether it's in my client's interest to do that. Uh, many former journalists are now uh, in the business of advising people in, in this capacity, uh, whether it's in a, a crisis communication capacity. You know, uh, you can imagine probably the um, uh, there's a lot of cases in the media right now where there's somebody uh, giving lawyers in the background some help. Um, and I think that's just a, a really great tool. Uh, it's there for you, not just uh, former reporters or, or current reporters, but also people with experience like Jessica and I will always take phone calls and work with people to, to help them understand what the benefits and drawbacks are of, of talking to the media about any case. Um, one of the most challenging things is talking about your own cases because, um, number one, there are some sort of professional obligations to, to do that you know, with consent of your client. Uh, there's the uh, further uh, concern about one of the, there's a rule of professional conduct that says that you can't or you shouldn't be speaking to the, to the media where it could prejudice a person's uh, rights to a fair trial or a fair hearing. And so you need to be mindful of just the rules of professional conduct that govern you. Um, also, um, sometimes a, a person's natural instinct is to say no comment or, or just to ignore the reporter altogether. And I just think that's poor form. Um, even if you're going to say that you're not going to be commenting, there's a way you can say it by giving a comment. You can say, 
um, you know, uh, my client intends to defend themselves vigorously uh, in court um, and or, or defend their innocence. Uh, I, I was uh, we were talking about this the other day. Most people would just say my client's going to plead not guilty. Not guilty doesn't sound great. You know, uh, you don't like the word guilty in there at all. So we just talk about innocence. And even though we don't defend our client's innocence, they're presumed innocent. Um, it's it's something that helps sort of frame or, or reframe your your client's position in the media. You're only going to get a soundbite in there, so you might as well make it a good one. Yeah, yeah. and to say your client's going to defend their innocence at trial, it's like that's a powerful statement. But also saying, and I won't be, uh, you know, speaking to the media while that's happening, even though that's exactly what you're doing, and you've gotten your point across. And uh, really, the the best you're going to say anyway was what you just said, which is just. Uh, we're going to trust that the courts are going to arrive at, at a just verdict. Marie said it best when she said, I don't try my cases in the media. I love, I loved that one. I still love it to this day. But uh, I think also we get asked a lot how our clients feel about a decision when the decision comes out. And I, I had a murder case recently in, uh, in another jurisdiction outside of the GTA, and I reached out to Dan because we were disappointed in the decision, in the outcome. My client had offered to plead guilty to manslaughter, and the Crown uh, would not accept that plea. And so we worked on what an appropriate way to convey that was, and we said we are disappointed in the outcome, that our client hadn't minimized his role in the offence, but that legally he wasn't guilty of murder. But that would be for a higher court to review at another time. And I felt like that was a really strong statement. I personally wouldn't have come up with that on my own, but I, I sought Dan's advice and he helped me craft that wording that I had come up with in a much stronger way. But I sought my client's instructions and I made sure I had his instructions in writing before I engaged the media. But because we were in a small jurisdiction, what my client said and what we said about him to the media was important to the community. And so I didn't want to say no comment. But you can't also dump on the judge and say, well, the judge was out to lunch and I didn't expect any any justice from this court anyway. I mean, you have to be very careful about um, it, those types of comments um, can lead to professional misconduct application or, or um claims. Um, there is uh, rules that govern how we're allowed to communicate with the public and disparaging the courts and the administration of justice is is one of the surefire ways to, to getting uh, disciplined by the law society. So you have to be really careful about that. And there's been some really kind of fantastic examples of, of people doing just that and getting themselves into a lot of trouble over it. So let me just ask you, first of all, there's two things that came up here that I want to I ask about. First, in terms of getting instructions from your client is that you do need to get instructions from from your client to speak to the media i i think you should um and uh, because you have obligations to your client um you, your retainer agreement may say that uh you're giving me the authority to kind of represent you in the best ways that that, that are necessary and you can maybe rely on that uh, but sometimes having explicit directions is, is probably a good idea because what do you do when your client is upset at you over something you've said to the media uh, and you have no instructions from them? It's, it, it, it's, it has happened before. Lawyers have been sued by their uh, former clients over things they've said in the media, even things that were 
uh, not uh, the subject of solicitor-client privilege, just things that were generally known. Having a lawyer just speaking about a, a former client's case has generated lawsuits and has generated discipline hearings uh, through the law society. And I think that's something that lawyers need to be aware of and mindful of. Uh, just like we get our clients' instructions on a whole variety of, of other things and things in writing to confirm that, I think this is one of those things that makes good sense as well. I, I don't think it's a maybe. I think it's a must. And um, if Nadia Levo were here in the room with us, uh, I think she would agree. You have to get instructions before you engage the media. Whether or not they're in writing, maybe you can do without them being written and signed off on. But I think you have to give your client the heads up and they have to okay it because you owe that client a duty of confidentiality and a duty of loyalty, which means you're not building your career and your reputation on the back of your client, especially if it was not a successful case or you're going to put their name back in the media in a way that's unfavorable to them. And so on that point, I think it also has to be in the client's best interest that you're speaking to the media and that you're not saying something that's going to adversely affect them. How about in a situation where a reporter asks you to comment on something that you may have done and said in a closing address or comment on a particular cross-examination that occurred in a trial or something like that, where it's already a matter of public record, but they're asking you you know, because I've had that happen to me. Say, well, Mr. Shara said this in his closing address. Do you want to tell us, you know, flesh that out a little bit more in an article? Yeah. So even the things you say in public or the things that are part of a public record uh, can still contravene your duty of loyalty to your clients, which is independent than your duty of confidentiality. And as Jess was saying before, uh, there are examples, very famous examples of, of very prominent lawyers who've been sued by their clients for talking about things that were of public record, you know, uh, a case that had previously been in the media um, that had some notoriety that was back again because the lawyer was talking about it in some public way. Um, and the client was very unhappy because the clients expected that the, their own lawyer wouldn't be the one generating publicity about it. And uh, that duty of loyalty exists even after your retainer with the client uh, is extinguished. Um, and it's just something you need to be mindful of. And, and so the best thing, if you're going to go talk to the media, speak to your client first and make sure they're okay with it. If you're concerned that your client wouldn't give you approval, well, then that's, that's probably a good indicator that you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So, so when is it and when is it not a good idea to speak to the media? I think you're always in a good position to comment on another case and consider your role to be able to uh, consider your role as a person who can educate the public about the case and about what's happening. Uh, remember that we as defense lawyers are uniquely positioned to convey to the public that that there should be due process, there's a presumption of innocence, there's uh, constitutional rights that apply to all of us, and there's plenty of times where there's infamous and unfavorable cases that are in the media. That gives us an opportunity to explain why our court system exists and, and how those laws apply equally to everyone, even those who have been alleged to have done heinous uh, things. So, I think there's lots of opportunity and times when it is a good idea. 
but you should certainly sit back and take a look at whether or not you should be commenting on your own case while it's ongoing and whether or not you comment on someone something someone else did in another case, like one of our colleagues, because what the media may be trying to do is pit you against the other person. And so I avoid that. I don't want to comment on one of my colleagues' cases or their strategy and criticize them in an open way. I think that's, for me, that's offside, and I, I that's a no-go. Yeah, I think there's definitely times when you want to think about why you're speaking to the media. How does this help your client if it's your own case? Uh, one example that comes up um, more frequently than others uh, in my practice is that uh, there are times when a client is arrested and, and their picture is put in the newspaper. So-and-so has been charged with this serious offense. And, you know, we think maybe there might be others to come forward. And uh, if you're also a victim of this person, you know, please let us know. Uh, and then from there, there's, it kind of goes silent. And, and the media is not covering the case anymore. It's not a high-profile case per se, but the type of thing that had some media response on the front end. And so then on the back end of the case, either the client's acquitted or the charges are dropped or, or something else um, successful happens. And it, when your client Googles their name or anyone else, a future employer Googles their name, all they're going to see is the charge and not the outcome. And so I've had instances where I've reached out to newspapers who have published that first story and said, hey, um, I've got um, a follow-up uh, story. Uh, are you interested in, in, in telling and sometimes they will. Uh, most times they'll um, either amend the original story to have some reference to the fact that the charge was dismissed. Uh, they may occasionally consider removing the original um, charging story, but very rarely. Uh, and in, in sometimes they can generate another story about how your client is picking up the pieces uh, following their exoneration. Uh, and I've, I've done that with a lot of success for clients. And it's, it's one of those ways we can help rehabilitate their reputations following a really serious um, incident like this and an unfortunate incident that's uh, generated media attention. I've had some success as well, especially around cases that involved uh, persons with mental illness, if they were unwell at the time. And I've reached out to the writer or the media outlet and explained that as part of their rehabilitation, their receiving treatment and the charges were withdrawn or stayed or they were acquitted or they were found not criminally responsible. There are situations where the media will engage with you, but I, I would say it's it's not always, which is unfortunate because those those Google hits stay on on the web for a long time. So if you're if you're faced with that, there's also some PR strategists that can help uh, talk to you about that and ways to deal with that. When you're in, engaging members of the media, how do you know which ones to trust and which ones not to trust? Like there's some that we know, like Sam Pizzano is one of them I can think of. I think Betsy Powell also has a very good reputation um, in terms of providing a fair account of what's occurring and then there are others where you there's just such a slant in the story that you really don't even want to engage them let's just be honest that's they don't like it when i say that to them i say well i don't really want to talk to you because your stories always have a particular slant um how do you know or 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 is there or do you just talk to them all well i mean i think we generally know sort of how some 
some journalists are. Uh, for example, if you're getting a call from uh, Rebel News and they're doing a story on the trucker convoy, and if you've read any other stories in Rebel uh, uh, in Rebel News about uh, those issues, you'll have a sense of sort of what their agenda is. Uh, sometimes uh, newspapers, uh, you know, it, their their kind of views are thinly veiled, and, and other times uh, they actually write quite balanced stories. And I think. W- it requires you to do a bit of research. It requires you to ask around and speak to other colleagues. Uh, if you're not sure if you can trust somebody, be very cautious with them and, and set ground rules with them. And, and uh, there are some really well-known reporters that can be very much trusted. And generally, the ones that we read about all the time writing about criminal justice issues are the types of reporters that you can uh, trust and, and you know will understand the nuance of the issue. Um I, we had an experience at, at my office where someone was giving a comment to uh, a reporter who didn't normally cover justice issues. And they said, oh, this, um, they asked about what type of sentence a person would get for um, some offense. And they said, well, the maximum sentence you could get for this offense is uh, 10 years. And the comment that was in the story was uh, the lawyer said that the person was going to get 10 years. And and that's just not recognizing sort of like the small nuanced distinction between what a maximum sentence is and what a likely sentence is. Um, and it required us then to do some uh, back channeling with the reporter and say, oh, you actually got the story wrong and it needs to be changed and, and updated. And, and the person who had made the comment was worried because she thought people were going to think of that she didn't know what she was talking about because this reporter had sort of taken her words out of context. So ask yourself, am I dealing with somebody who understands the justice system? Uh, am I dealing with a newspaper that has a reputation for being balanced and fair? Um, if you're not sure uh, about either of those, you really want to make sure you set a lot of uh, ground rules and give a lot of context to the things you're saying because otherwise it can get easily misconstrued. You could do a 90-minute interview and they only use... 90 seconds. So keep that in mind that things that you say might be taken out of context. You should be careful to explain, give caveats if there are caveats, give examples, make sure that things are are put in their context. If it's in print, you can ask to see the print version of your quote before it goes out. I always do that. And if you're doing an audio or television interview, I ask to see what the questions are going to be in advance. If the journalist can't provide me the exact questions, I'm fine with that, but I want to know what the areas are in advance so I can prepare. You should know that your conversations are always on the record. There's no such thing as off the record. That was going to be my next discussion. <laughs> you, can ask, you can ask them not to publish certain things, but remember that that journalist is trying to produce something that's salacious enough to get them some traction. And so... What you say, it's always on the record, and you should assume that you're always being recorded. That's the other thing. I've I've done plenty of interviews where the journalist did not tell me that they were recording, and it took me a little while as a young lawyer to realize you're always being recorded. I had the benefit of uh, my, my partner uh, went to journalism school, and, and he said to me, like, you know they're recording you, right? Those All of those discussions you just had. And they could use any part of that. And I didn't realize that at first. I thought they were specifically going to say, now this is the part we're going to quote you. <laughs> so it's good to keep those pieces in mind. I never had a conversation with Sam Pisano that was less than 90 minutes. <laughs> He's never quoted me. <laughs> me neither. So, so I'm not worried. No, I wasn't ever worried about Sam. But 
But I think Jess makes a good point, right. sort of setting the ground rules early. So you can ask, are you recording this? And there's nothing wrong with a reporter recording. Most will because they want to make sure they get it right. Um, I don't have a problem with a reporter recording me, I, but it helps to know that that's happening. Uh, number two, you can say, what I'm about to tell you is not just using the word off record. Off record could mean different things to different reporters. It means um, I can put it in my story, but I won't attribute it to you. Uh, or I could say like sources close to the investigation say X and Y. Or you can say, look, what I'm about to tell you, you can't print, you you can um, use as background, but can't be uh, attributed even to a source close to the investigation. You, you can't assume that the term off record means the same thing to different journalists. Um, and so I might have an understanding with one journalist what off the record means, but um, it goes out the window with the next one that I've never dealt with. So just be clear. I can say, I'm going to give you some things that I'm I'm okay if you print and publish, and I'm going to tell you some things just on background that, that just to give you context that I don't want you to, to attribute to me. And that might be something more informal or more controversial or just my personal view about something that I don't want to read about. Uh, I think most reporters, they're not just in it for a, a quick gotcha and a quick story and to burn a bridge with you. They want to maintain a long-term relationship. I come into every interaction I have with journalists as a long-term relationship and uh, most of the ones that I deal with want the same. So the last thing they want to do is sort of like misquote me or take something I've shared with them and printed it when I didn't want that to happen. Uh, and it leads to some conflict where they can't come back to me in the future. or I can't trust them in the future. Do you find that um, they abide by the ground rules or by the request that you make? Uh, I've only had it not happen once. Um, and that was perhaps my uh inexperience at the time where I wasn't as clear about w the information I was sharing what I, I had used the, the word on background and uh, what background meant to this reporter was different than what it meant to me and so that was a, a lesson that I'm trying to share with all of you now which is like you know d don't just use the, the jargon but ex you know set the ground rules clearly at the outset I agree with that I've I've had the same experience and where I didn't feel my quote was fair uh, i I wrote back to the journalist and I said, I think this requires more context. The way that it's captured is inaccurate and they fixed it. But you also have to be proactive about that and respect that the journalist has timelines. If they're calling you for a quote at 4.30 about how the court day went, they're publishing that for the six o'clock news. And your piece, what you've said may be going in print, it may be on audio, it may be on video or all three. So if something is inaccurate, you need to get back to them on that right away. And so if you're asking to see the product before it goes out, then you better be responsive to them. Otherwise, they may just publish it. How do you deal with a reporter who takes up you know, a portion of your time, asks you certain questions, you provide them with, obviously, you know, the defense side of the case, and then when you when you watch or see the story, it's just a a victim's account the whole time. But yet you've taken the time to provide all this and try to try to educate the public, but then they bear you no mind. How do you deal with that? Does it affect you in any way? Well, it feels like it, the natural reaction would to feel like that was a waste of your time. But I, I use those opportunities to build relationships with those journalists. And I might say to them, hey, you interviewed me for 90 minutes last time and 
you didn't use any of what we talked about. And I might say, you know, it's really important to capture both sides of the story and try to speak to the journalist about why that's important. And I think a lot of reputable journalists do try to cover both sides of the story, but it doesn't always happen. So I think you have to know that some of these interviews will just be lost leaders. And I've had plenty of those when it comes to commenting on new legislation that's coming out, new bills, uh, educating them about the legislative history of bills. Like journalists will ask you a ton of questions about that, and then they'll write about it as if it was their own and not necessarily get into what you said. And it can be, I mean, I think that you have to set your own limits. You have to know the journalist, uh, take a look at, at what the slant is that they may be presenting, and then make a decision about whether or not that's a worthwhile use of your time. I think also like journalists, you know, they, they, they're not out to waste your time or their time. They want to have the context they need. Sometimes, though, what someone else says is similar and maybe better and more concise or anything else. And uh, uh, there's only so much room in the newspaper and maybe something that was in the story got cut out by one of their editors. Uh, I often have journalists that will meet with me, speak with me. You know, uh, I'll, I'll read the story later on and not see myself in it. I mean, that, that happens from time to time. And normally the journalist just says, sorry, like I just had too many too many voices and not enough space to print it. Um, but I think taking that time to, to meet with the journalist, as Jessica says, is like a, a relationship building um, experience and it's important. I think as well, taking the time to educate a reporter, making sure they're coming at it from the right direction is also important. Um, unlike Crown attorneys who will almost never speak to the media, being a defense lawyer that speaks to the media and, and providing them with information and context and uh, considering aspects of the story they haven't thought about makes you really valuable. Um, and it's a valuable tool to educate the public. And it's a way that we can get um, a, a perspective that's often ignored, which is the either the accused perspective or the defense exp- um, perspective on a particular issue. We hear so much about victims and um, crowns and everything else in the system. So uh, that's an important voice as well. Does speaking to the media actually translate into more clients for you, Dan? No, I mean, no one, I, I, I don't think I've ever had a case where someone said, oh, I read your quote in the in the media or, or anything else like that, and therefore I want to hire you. Quite often I'll have friends or family that'll say, oh yeah, I saw you on the news or this or that. And they'll think of me in a particular way because of it. it either it reminds them that I'm a criminal lawyer or it, or it uh, conveys to them or others that I'm uh, respected because if somebody's quoting me, uh, it presumes that somebody thinks that I have something valuable to say. And so I think you can parlay that type of experience um, into clients because it's it's kind of a hallmark of credibility and it's something you can use to build your brand. But very rarely will someone say, I agreed with you so much on that comment you made about that person's trial that um, I need to hire you as well. I, I, I don't think that's ever happened, but I do think it's worthwhile for my brand and for, for my public image to, to be seen to be talking uh, in the media and to be quoted in the media. It certainly is a building block for your brand. If you are being asked to give quotes to give interviews in the media, that shows that you have a certain amount of authority, that you're a thought leader, and that people can rely on what you have to say. And maybe you have an interesting perspective because you're a subject matter expert, which I always encourage young lawyers to do is find something 
that is your niche. It's your area of expertise. And for me, it was mental health. And so I speak a lot on cases involving uh, the defense of not criminally responsible uh, and other cases that involve uh, a mental health element. So I do think it's a good idea to do that. It helps you build your brand and gain uh, credibility both with the public and your potential clients uh, and your colleagues. Do you feel that sometimes with all the media that's out there, lawyer comments on other cases are a little saturated? In the sense that, you know, they, they'll take whoever is prepared to speak on an issue? Yeah, I think, I think what the media wants is somebody who can speak in, in a way that is understandable to the public at large. Like, you cannot give a media interview and rely on legal jargon. Uh, we can't use terms like 11B when we're talking about a delay application or, or an application of charges stayed because they've taken too long. You can't call something a, a JPT with, that means something to you and you understand exactly what you're talking about, but it doesn't translate to the, to the public at large. I don't even use the term disclosure. I would call it evidence when I'm talking to the, to, to the public trying to convey a point. Um, and I think that the people that, are, that make it easy for the journalist to do their job, the journalist wants a quote from an expert to explain context. And if you're available for that and you're always picking up your phone and getting back to them and making sure they can get uh, a quote in by deadline, that makes you really, really valuable. And if you see people all the time who are doing it, it's because they make themselves available all the time to do it because they are a resource for the, the journalist. And so even when you're thinking about sort of like starting out, how do you um, establish a connection in the first place? It doesn't need to be waiting for the journalist to call you. You might see something in court or have a really great idea about a story and reach out to the journalist. That my, The very first time I got into the paper um, was because I saw something in court that had some I thought was newsworthy that a reporter ought to be reporting about. And it was a big case. It eventually made its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. It was about a woman that was asked to take off her niqab uh, to testify because the lawyer was was asserting that he had a right to um, cross-examine the witness and see her face. And I thought here was a really interesting um, kind of interaction between a, a, a complainant's rights in a case uh, to uh, her religious freedoms and to have this niqab on and an accused person's rights to confront their uh, accuser and that this was going to be a big story. And so it wasn't about me. I wasn't mentioned in the story. I wasn't quoted at all. But it gave me a chance to build a relationship with that reporter. And that reporter, the next time around, came back to me. So it's a give-and-take relationship. Do you ever use the media as a tool to kind of advance your client's case? I think you can. I, I think, I, I mean, I can give you a, a one example I, I represented a client many years ago who came home uh, to his house and there were some shoes there that he didn't recognize. Um, he grabbed a knife and went upstairs and found an intruder, someone who had broken into his house and was in his mother-in-law's bedroom. And um, a, a physical fight took place. Uh, the intruder uh, stabbed, was stabbed by my client uh, in the chest and my client was charged with aggravated assault. The intruder was charged with breaking and entering. Um, and I couldn't believe that the, the police and the Crown Attorney were prosecuting this case where my client 
from my perspective, was sort of a hero. He came in, saved his mother-in-law from being attacked, and he ended up being charged. And I thought this is exactly the type of case that if it had some media attention, would put pressure on the Crown Attorney's office to consider dropping the charges. And we did that. We gave uh, an interview to the the media. Uh, We gave them all the facts. Uh, It became a big story. And shortly afterwards, the Crown Attorney withdrew the charges. But that wasn't happening in the absence of some media... um, pressure on uh, on this particular case but very rarely do you get that case where your client you can portray him as a hero um and i remember sort of having one i said oh this man shouldn't get a criminal record he should get a medal or something and that was sort of like a quote that could be uh used to advance his his uh defense and but we did that with his permission and we did that with his participation and, and a PR strategy. And a PR strategy. And, and sometimes it works really well. I mean, I... It can also backfire. It can definitely backfire. And that's why you sort of have to trust your own instincts. And if you're not sure, you got to speak to other people. I did a lot of talking with other lawyers and other sort of PR people to figure out if this is something I could spin in my favor and what was the, the, the downside to it. I mean, you, it, not every case is well suited for that. And most importantly, you have to think that you ha- it's always driven by what's in your client's best interest, not wouldn't it be great for Daniel to have um, his picture in the newspaper at being associated with his clients. Uh, it, it isn't that that drives it. You have to only focus on, can I use this to my client's best interests? I kind of got stuck on the intruder who removed his shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, well, that was, that was like, the, I guess he just wanted to be quiet while he was going up the stairs. But uh, I, I don't think he was being considerate. But um, and even when we had the preliminary inquiry in that case, I didn't ask for a publication ban because I wanted the media to be able to report on everything that was being said. That was part of the media strategy. But it was it was definitely something we thought about and it was purposeful. And I think whenever you're speaking to the media, you, what you're doing has to be purposeful. You can't go in there with no strategy and hope for the best because very rarely will you get the best out of that experience. Just out of curiosity, did all like does the client have to incur the cost of of that aspect of the defense in terms of like the public aspect? Like separate I'm I'm asking like do the PR people cost money? Do you have to engage people or are you just doing favors? Absolutely. They they cost a lot depending on who you're hiring. And I think it depends on how high profile the case is, who you need to get. There's professionals out there. There's Navigator. There's Strategy Core. Uh, there's other crisis management teams. For me, I, I have a PR person uh, who I engage regularly who will consult with me. But uh, depending on how high profile and how much resources the client has, you should be engaging a professional to help you. Yeah, and if you can't afford a professional, you might rely on the favors of like a formal journalist, you know, calling up a Sam Pisano and saying, hey, Sam, like, can you just give me some advice? In the same way that Sam knows he can call me and ask me about something that's going on and I would give him the same advice. Uh, so maybe you've established relationships with other lawyers or, or other journalists. But if you haven't, yeah, making sure you set some money aside in the same way you would for any other professional you're gauging, whether it's a therapist to prepare a, a counseling report or a private investigator who's going to do some work for you, uh, a PR budget is also something to consider. You should think about the long-term consequences for the case and for the client. If you're, if you're deciding to engage the media and make a splash, it better have a measurable benefit. Otherwise, you're creating unnecessary 
uh, Google hits that will haunt your client forever and, and may prejudice a jury. You shouldn't be out there for a quick media grab. So really sit back and think about the overall strategy of the case and whether or not this comment or media engagement is going to be of benefit. So there's a couple aspects I want to get to, but on that point, sometimes we're unaware as lawyers that there is going to be a media attention on a particular case when we attend for a bail hearing or just a court appearance or something and suddenly there's you know reporters or a few reporters there asking you some questions you're not prepared what do you do in those circumstances when you're just not prepared to respond in the moment is there anything like can you say to the reporter you know can i call you know call you later or i'm not sure what, what's the approach ask the reporter or journalist what their timeline is and if you can get back to them so usually what i'll do is i'm not i'm not usually prepared when i walk out the doors of uh, 501 court to give a comment right at that moment whether i've won or lost i need a moment to absorb it i probably need a second to speak to my client's family i might need to speak to my client and get instructions Usually you know when you're in the courtroom, when you're physically in the courtroom, whether or not the media is there watching you. But you, for me, sometimes I'm so engrossed in the case that I'm not actually looking at who's behind me in the courtroom. So take a minute, take the time that you need, ask the journalist what their timelines are, ask them if they can send you the questions in advance or at least the themes or topics, and if you can get back to them. And, and if you agree to get back to them, then actually do that. And uh, then think about it. Think about what you're going to say. Write out what you're going to say. Make sure you have your client's instructions. Get some advice if you need it. Um, and what I, what I, my biggest point and takeaway would be is if you can provide the quote in writing, you're probably better off to do that. I, I enjoy providing a quote in writing much more than I do on the fly. Nothing makes me more nervous than a live interview. I've done them, but I don't. I don't enjoy them because they won't edit. So what you say is is out there and you don't have a chance to take it back. Daniel? I, I think all of that is good advice. Um, you, you don't have to answer anything on the spot. and um, But if you think that there's an advantage, something you can say that will improve the situation and, and uh, you can control the way you say it, an email maybe where you control the the tone of the of the message that's really important uh the only thing i say generally when you're writing we tend to to write differently than we speak um and when you read a written quote in the newspaper sometimes it reveals itself as being something that's been like overly finessed and so there's nothing wrong with it sounding a bit more casual like the way someone would speak instead of saying do not you can say don't uh uh, even if it's in an email and, and just be mindful of that as well. Like, it, you know, most people are, are thinking that quotes are spoken. And so you want to try and write that way as well. What about if you get a, a weird question or a, a kind of like a uneducated question? What do you do with that? And so sometimes the really great spokespeople that uh, you see them, they're asked the question and they, they have key messages they want to get across. And it doesn't matter what the question is, they always get it back to their key message. I love so this. So they can, you don't have to answer every question that's asked of you and you don't have to give a direct it's answer. It's not cross-examination. <laughs> exactly. And you can just, if there's something that you think is important to say or to repeat, you just repeat it. 
Um, and that's how the good ones do it. And um, quite often, I, I've, we've had lawyers in the office that have had some success, and they kind of get this generic set of emails or emailed questions from you know one of the local like lawyers, uh, newspapers, and they ask the same questions in every case because they don't know what's important about the case. Uh, and I always say to the to the lawyers that are answering it, just ignore that particular question. It's not interesting at all but tell them something interesting about the case instead. And never have we gotten a reply back that says, oh, you missed that question. It was just like, thank you very much for what you've shared with me. Um, so don't feel constrained by the questions. You're not constrained by the questions. Your answers should be what govern. Is it ever a good idea for the lawyer to become part of the story? No. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But, but I always, it happens. Well, I always I mean, remember like Eddie Greenspan would come out of the courtroom and all these reporters would be asking him a million questions on a daily basis. And, you know, he would be interviewed. He had no problem engaging the media. And, you know, he was who he was. But I'm just saying for the rest of us. Of course. So there are the titans of our bar for whom every case they do becomes about them. And that's just the way it is. And that's okay. But for me, I, I say to clients, are you looking for a defense that's discreet? Because I will try to keep you out of the media, not in the media. And for a lot of my clients, especially the professionals, they do not want their name in the media. They hire me because I say no one knows me, no one cares what uh, clothes I'm wearing or shoes I'm wearing, and uh, no one's going to report on what I'm doing. A big part of the success I've had in getting high-profile cases and clients is because I go into court, I know the prosecutor, and I get it withdrawn before anyone knows I was even there. Yeah, I think that's also really great advice. I think that there's some people that can control the media so well. Maybe they become part of the story, but they always figure out a way to sort of use that to their advantage. It gives them a platform to... Um, reiterate sort of their client's position uh, to uh, if if you saw sort of some of the media strategy that surrounded the James Versillo case, he was accused of, he was a Toronto police officer accused of uh, shooting and killing Sammy Yatim. Uh, there was so much bad press uh, that they really wanted to try and sway public opinion about that. Uh, there was a Toronto Life article that was told from the perspective of his wife about what a good husband he was. The timing of it uh, so close to the trial, like no one would come out and say we did this uh, intentionally to kind of make sure that the jury uh, or potential jurors had a different view. But, you know, kind of teasing out and, and, and swaying public opinion, it, it can be a, a useful tool for, for lawyers who are representing clients where optically things don't look particularly good. Um, you know, Clay Ruby and Eddie Greenspan and Marie Hennon all do it really, really, really well. Uh, and they're they're just at the top of their game. Uh, Daniel Robitaille, I've been watching her recently handle some of the questions that have been coming out uh, through the uh, Hockey Canada investigation. She's just doing such a great job as well. Some people just have a natural gift. And if you do, you can use it in this really positive way. And if you, if you don't, uh, or you're not confident, then then just stay away from it uh, because you just don't want it to blow up. I like it as a strategy to get clients as opposed to lacking confidence in the media. That's not my issue, but I like the fact that I can go unnoticed and, and 
I have been able to get cases withdrawn for clients because the Crown didn't realize that this person had a high profile and where I think that had they known the severity of the case or had they you know, looked at the evidence through the lens of the per- that the person was famous or infamous, that may have affected their decision. So I'm always looking at the case in the way that it's the best strategy, the best outcome for the client, whether or not you engage or um, let it be known that this has happened or try to take it out of the media. One example I can give is that I try to get a publication ban in bail court as quickly as possible, as soon as the person is charged right from the police station, if I can. We've been largely talking about, you know, mainstream media, newspapers and TV interviews, but a lot of our listeners and younger lawyers particularly um, use a lot of social media to get their points across, comment on cases and so on. Do either of you feel comfortable discussing the use of social media as a form of media that reflects on or, or have any suggestions for people, lawyers who are using social media to to boost, boost their profile in some way? Well, I'll let Dan take this one because he's an expert on uh, Twitter, and I'm on Twitter hiatus for now. I, I think Twitter can be a really powerful tool. Uh, reporters are on Twitter. So if you're tweeting about things that are important, uh, an important justice um, initiative, uh, you know, crime statistics, some something... Uh, that can generate an idea for a story and a reporter sees that, they're going to reach out. I, I, I know reporters that have reached out to me and said, I saw you tweeted about this. I'm really curious to know more. You know, Can you share some of those statistics you mentioned in your tweet? Or do you have any uh, examples of the thing you were talking about? Um, I think also the way I am on Twitter, I, I, I always it's the same. It, I have this professional persona in anything that's public facing, whether I'm speaking to the media, whether I'm speaking to um, people in a in a conference, whether I'm on a podcast or whether I'm on Twitter, I, I don't change the way I approach um, being sort of a spokesperson. If, the- you, if you want to see pictures of my corgi or cheese boards, feel free to follow me on Instagram. Yeah, I, I mean, but there's things that are private. If, if, if I don't want anyone to know what what my personal life is or my personal views are I'll, I'll lock that out you know I'll, I'll make sure that that's a private account um, and, but if, if something's a public account that anyone can see I'm really mindful about what I'm saying uh, and whether I'm speaking in a personal capacity or in a professional capacity you always have to sort of speak the same way because you may think, oh, I'm just saying this as Daniel Brown and forgetting uh, that you're also the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association or, or a board member of, of some uh, organization or, or or a representative of the criminal justice system. So I agree with that. Nothing is ever in your personal capacity. And just like we were talking about how media affects our clients and every Google hit is permanent somewhere, it's the same for lawyers and young lawyers. And we should think about how social media and how we feel about the justice system or a case and what we say about it at the beginning of our career could still be out there towards the end of our careers. And I guess it depends what you see yourself doing in your career trajectory. But uh, there is a tendency for young lawyers to complain about problems in the justice system with disclosure or wait times or not getting called or complaining about senior lawyers. 
that never seems to end well. So I would, uh, I would refrain. Yeah, just to be mindful that anything you say in a public capacity can be the subject of a law society complaint, can be the, the subject of a, a, a civil lawsuit, uh, can uh, impact your reputation uh, or other people's perceptions of you. And I can tell you one last thing on this subject is that judges are all over Twitter. Um, <laughs> you will not know they're there. They are there. Uh, very rarely does it say, you know, justice so-and-so, but they're there in just some anonymous account uh, reading exactly what you're saying. And if you're dumping all over the justice system or a particular courthouse or court person, uh, they're reading all about it. Uh, and for better or for worse, uh, you just need to know that they're there. Is it? Is anybody going to listen to this and say, are you suggesting that we we be stifled and, and not be permitted to complain in these environments? Absolutely not. We need to speak out against injustice, and we're permitted to do that under the rules of professional conduct. We're encouraged to be zealous advocates for our clients, but you have to temper what you say and ensure that it's accurate. It shouldn't just be general bitching. That's not helpful. Uh, if you feel like doing that, that's what the lawyer's lounge is for or the listserv, but not, not putting that out there in a public way. I think also that the rules of professional conduct demand that the, what you say in public, whether it's on social media or to the media, like in a, in a comment, uh, that you're being mindful that it's the same as how you would communicate to other lawyers, uh, to, to, to the courts. Um, I mean, that's the expectation that the commentary of, of Rule 7.5 uh, in Ontario talks about that. that like, you, If you're going to comment on social media, you have to be mindful that there's a particular tone and a way you can go about it that won't get you into trouble. So it's not saying don't talk about it. Uh, but it's just being, be mindful of the way you, you talk about it, be respectful about the way you talk about it. Uh, and it, if you wouldn't say it in an open courtroom on the record, uh, don't say it on social media. Um, because, as I said, you're never not wearing your lawyer hat when you're on social media. I had a good piece of advice when I was in law school. Uh, Pat Ducharme was my trial advocacy professor uh, at Windsor Law. And he said, you don't respect the person sitting on the dais, you respect their office. And that was a very good way for me to think about how we respect the person sitting up there that we're bowing to and addressing. It's not that particular judge on that day who may yell at us or be mean to us. We're not responding to them. We're responding to the court. If you... Just to wrap this up in a in a way for any of our listeners who might be wondering, do you have a like a checklist or a top three tips that you might want to provide that you would say these are the the following things that you should consider um, when listening or when uh, deciding to speak with the media? I'll go either one, Jessica. Sure. Be entertaining. Have something snappy, something concise to say. That may be the soundbite. That's all that the journalist takes from your talk with them. Reframe the issue. Have some key phrases or a message that you want to come back to. And every question, come back to that message and, and reframe it in that way that gets that point across. 
and don't use legal jargon or legal phrases like 11B or other acronyms that we all speak to ourselves uh, in. Break it down in a way that the public can understand and, and see yourself as a real steward of the profession. Uh, you are there to educate the public. So be a good steward of the defense bar and convey why the defense and the process and the presumption of innocence is important and make sure that whatever it is that you're saying is in the best interest of your client if you're there speaking on behalf of your client. Yeah, these are all great tips. I think I would add to that and say, be prepared. So if just like you wouldn't walk into court and, and make legal submissions without doing your research, don't uh, make comment to the media without, without being prepared about the topic you're speaking about. Uh, have a have a purpose to your message. What is the message you want to convey? Know what your key message is before you even walk into that interview. Uh, don't let um, the the journalist sort of drive the agenda. If there's something that you think is important to say, make sure you say it. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is sometimes it's okay to say no. Um, sometimes I'm asked to talk about things that are going on in the news but aren't really in my area of expertise. Oh, can we talk about the Harvey Weinstein case and how similar fact evidence is used in that case? I, no, I can't talk about that. I don't know. That's U.S. law uh, and uh, whatever the laws that govern similar fact evidence there are probably different than they are here in Canada. So I'm not going to do that. Or can I talk about the extradition process in another country? No, I, I don't know that either. And it's okay. I mean, we all want to be quoted in the media, but the last thing you want to be doing is being quoted uh for something you don't know anything about or really have no business talking about. So just stay in your lane. If, if, if Canadian criminal law is what you know about, make sure whatever you're, you're talking about is, is related to that. And one last one is check in with yourself on, on the note of saying no, because you both know I say yes to too many things too many times, but check in with yourself about whether or not you have the capacity to give this interview and and what I'll say about that is I've been asked many times to appear on a morning show or give an interview at 6:30 in the morning on a talk show and 6:30 in the morning is not a good time for me I have not had enough coffee uh, to be, and probably too much rosé the night before to be ready for that interview and fresh and on point so if it's not a good time please Think about whether or not it's good for you and you have the capacity and you're going to be switched on and that you'll be proud at the end that you contributed in that way. If that's a no, you shouldn't do it. Daniel, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired? So I was really spoiled. I came up uh, it, with a, a great group of, of criminal defense lawyers at Pinkowski's, and I watched so many of them, especially the senior partners, uh, just slay it in court uh, every day. So very rarely am I surprised uh, in court by someone I, I wasn't expecting would perform well. Uh, I remember one occasion where I was in doing a drinking driving case, and there was a lawyer who I'd never seen before making submissions on a case while, while we were waiting to begin. And she was so good. She uh, knew every aspect of the law. She had every answer for the judge. Her speaking style was just so captivating. I was hanging on every word. 
And I was like, who is this person? She was obviously a, an experienced lawyer. I just had no idea who she was. And I'd been around long enough that I would have thought I would have recognized anyone of this caliber. Uh, it turned out that that uh, lawyer is now Justice uh, Susan Chapman. Um, she was um, a, an appellate lawyer at uh, the Crown Law Office um, for 20 years before she left and did some defense work. And I just, I was blown away by how good she was. And it just was totally unexpected and impressive. Jessica, same question. Edward Sapiano. I just uh, thought he was inspirational, uh, taken from the defense bar too soon. But there was a guy who would just fight and fight and fight. And he could be very... It was funny. He could be very agitated and worked up about something. But when he was in court, especially doing a homicide, he was totally focused, totally persuasive, great in front of a jury. He knew how to make timely objections. And he had this ability to thin slice the issues in a case and convey it to people in a way, convey it to the jury and to other lawyers in a way that anyone could understand. And he always had time for questions from young lawyers and was very supportive of the young bar. And I, I just, I really miss that. And I, I wish we had more, I wish we had more time and I had more time to watch. Agreed. Jessica Greenwood and Daniel Brown, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience and expertise with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? I'll just say check out our website, springlaw.ca. We have a number of resources to help law firms and solo practitioners with upping their employment law game. And if you have any questions about the intersection between employment and criminal law, please call me. I'm going to plug um, a delivery, uh, courier delivery service called the Goodfoot Good Foot Delivery. Uh, they're an organization that are couriers in Toronto. Um, they're mindful about their carbon uh, footprint, uh, so they rely on walking and taking uh, public transportation. And more importantly, they employ a whole range of people that would have otherwise had challenges securing employment because of uh, special needs. And, and uh, so some are on the autism spectrum, some are uh, uh, have Down syndrome, uh, but all of them are super capable, and it's a wonderful organization, and, and we should all consider using them. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Marco. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Dow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.